Welcome to the audio version of the Platinum Trust quarterly report for March 2023. The disclaimers are available on our website at platinum.com.au under terms and conditions. My name is Dean McClelland. I'm the head of retail investment specialists at Platinum, and I'm going to take you through what I think are some of the highlights of the report. I'll start by focusing on the Platinum International Fund and Platinum Asia Fund before sharing the key insights and outlook from our long-only regional and sector funds. Now, there are two additional resources that some listeners may be interested in. The report includes a feature article titled Vietnam, a Beneficiary of Foreign Investment, Urbanisation and a Growing Middle Class by Senior Investment Analyst Jack Kao. And there's also an audio version of the macro overview interview between Andrew Clifford and myself titled The Out of Favour and Areas of Significant Change Offer Opportunity. Now, both of these are available in the journal section of our website. So let's begin with the Platinum International Fund. Pleasingly, the fund returned 17.7% for the year, a 13.9% outperformance of the market, which returned 3.8%. The fund's long portfolio performed well, returning 10.7% for an overall contribution to performance of 8.4%, which was supplemented by a strong 8.8% contribution from our short positions. The year was characterised by the deflating of the speculative bubble and growth stocks and illustrates the benefit of Platinum's investment approach of seeking out opportunities in areas that are out of favour with investors and avoiding the much-loved investment ideas of the day. We believe the past year represents a strong start to the fund's performance in the current bear market in global equities. Now, the fund returned about 5.4% for the quarter, compared with the market's return of 87 Market returns in local currency terms were similar across regions. However, there were significant divergences by sector as investors responded to the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse by seeking out perceived safe havens in growth stocks and selling economically sensitive sectors. To demonstrate, information technology was up 20.3% while energy fell 3.5%. Those sectors in the eye of the storm also performed poorly with financials down 1.8% and real estate up only 0.5%. In terms of changes to the portfolio, the fund's net invested position increased from 63% to 70% over the quarter. The focus of the short portfolio continues to be on companies that have weak earnings outlooks as interest rates start to impact the growth outlook. We continued to reduce our short, petition, short positions rather, on the growth stocks that have already fallen heavily over the last year. In aggregate, short positions were reduced from 17% to 14% over the quarter. Moving on to commentary. In recent quarters, we have stressed how the investment environment has fundamentally changed from that of the prior decade. The period from the global financial crisis until early 2022 was marked by easy monetary policy and low interest rates, initially with quantitative easing and then the extraordinary fiscal and monetary policy response to the COVID pandemic. The cumulative effects of these policies have been the primary cause behind the sharp increase in inflation experienced across much of the global economy. The current interest rate tightening cycle that began in March 2022 has been dramatic, most notably in the US where official interest rates have risen from virtually zero to close to 5% in the space of a year. This is the most rapid increase in rates versus prior tightening cycles in the last 40 years. The monetary environment has changed from being a tailwind for economic growth and markets to a very strong headwind. 
The failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse are symptoms of this environment. It should be remembered that these events come on the back of other recent financial accidents, such as the forced liquidation of assets by UK pension funds last October as a result of losses in leveraged bond portfolios, and the collapse of cryptocurrency exchanges such as FTX. For the moment, banking regulators, by guaranteeing deposits, have calmed the situation both in the US and Switzerland. While there, while there are lingering doubts about whether we will see further bank runs in the US, it is quite possible that the worst may be over. However, this does not mean there are no further ramifications for investors as a result of these events. At the centre of the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and the broader troubles that have been faced by second-tier banks in the US in recent weeks are losses on bond and mortgage portfolios that resulted from the rise in interest rates. While these losses impacted bank capital, they did not cause Silicon Valley Bank to become insolvent. Rather, it was the loss of confidence of depositors due to the weakened balance sheet that resulted in a run on the bank and its ultimate demise. As such, the guarantee on deposits is an effective short-term solution. This doesn't solve the problem for the remaining banks that have accumulated losses in their bond and mortgage portfolios, reducing their capital base and thus their ability and willingness to make new loans at a time when banks were already becoming increasingly cautious. It's important to note that these second-tier banks in the US are important lenders to small and medium-sized businesses, accounting for 28% of bank lending to this sector and similarly to commercial real estate, providing 67% of bank lending. This reduction in the availability of new loans is likely to exacerbate the impact of higher interest rates at a time when corporate defaults are rising at an alarming pace. The precariousness of the situation why many are now, is why many are now predicting that the US Federal Reserve will stop raising interest rates and start cutting rates before the end of the year. Given that there are also signs that inflation has peaked, this is not an unreasonable conclusion to draw. The one dilemma the Fed faces at this time, though, is that the US economy remains quite robust. While we noted last quarter that employee layoff announcement had picked up sharply, employment markets remain tight, with people finding new jobs, and annual wage growth, while softening, remains historically strong, growing by 7.3% for the 12 months to February 2023. There remains the risk that a significant cut in interest rates too early could reignite inflationary forces. There have been concerns about possible contagion from the US to other banking systems, with the failure of Credit Suisse emphasising these concerns. While higher rates may yet impact other banking systems, the transmission mechanism will be different. In the US, residential mortgages are primarily done on a fixed rate basis for 30 years, which means when rates go up, the lender loses out. In banking systems in other countries, where variable rate or short-term fixed-rate mortgages are standard, it is the borrower that suffers when rates rise. Ultimately, that may result in banks incurring higher credit costs if increasing numbers of households are unable to service their mortgages. For the moment, there is little evidence of this in markets such as Europe or Australia, but of course, one cannot discount that it may yet happen in time. As for Credit Suisse, it was simply an accident-prone institution that was vulnerable to a bank run in a time of significant uncertainty. It is worth mentioning that none of the platinum funds hold any US banks or Credit Suisse. Europe's economy has been remarkably resilient in the face of numerous negative factors. Interest rates have risen sharply in response to inflation, as we have seen elsewhere. 
The war in Ukraine has severely impacted consumer and business confidence, not to mention the disruption to energy and other commodity markets. Yet the European economy still grew in real terms over the course of 2022 by 3.5%, and likewise employment grew by 1.2%. This has occurred in a period where rapidly escalating energy prices in the first half of 2022 resulted in an outright loss of competitiveness for European industries with energy-intensive sectors such as petrochemicals and fertilisers experiencing significant capacity closures. Offsetting this set of unfortunate circumstances was that energy prices only remained elevated for a relatively short period, with key markets returning to levels before the Ukraine war, partly as a result of the good fortune of a warmer-than-normal winter and a sluggish Chinese economy reducing overall energy demand. While the outcomes in Europe have been surprisingly good, there remains a degree of uncertainty. Firstly, history would suggest there is a significant lag between interest rate increases and their impact on activity, in which case we are yet to see the full impact of last year's interest rate rises. Further, it is far from clear that Europe has fully resolved its energy supply issues, particularly as there is a significant degree of good fortune in escaping the worst-case scenarios in the second half of last year. In China, the country has moved beyond the damaging economic effects of last year's COVID lockdowns in a similar fashion to the rest of the world, with indicators of mobility suggesting life is returning to normal. Most importantly, there has been a pickup in sales of residential apartments in the major cities, suggesting that the government's move to ensure adequate funding for property developers to complete projects has resulted in a lift in confidence in the sector. We would expect the economy to continue to build momentum as the year unfolds, with respect to tension between the US and China, it is worth noting that the announcement from Ford that for its new electric vehicle plant it will be using battery technology provided by the Chinese company Contemporary Amperex Technology Co Limited, more commonly known as CATL or Cattle. While there are reports that Tesla will also sign a deal with the company, the Ford deal has been signed even though it could potentially exclude the company from US subsidies. CATL is the global leader in providing electric vehicle batteries, having mastered making batteries using a lower-cost lithium-ion phosphate chemistry. This is mentioned simply to note that while the war of words continues between the US and China, the reality is that the economies of the West and China are highly interdependent. Finally, moving to the outlook. Since the collapse in the stock price of Silicon Valley Bank on the 9th of March, it's interesting that the US market has rallied 5% in local currency terms, while other major stock markets have generally weakened. The strong short-term performance of the US is generally attributed to the increased likelihood of earlier-than-expected interest rate cuts. While cuts are probably closer than we thought, this is probably not a good explanation for the market's reaction. After the last two speculative stock market bubbles that ended in 2001, the tech rec, and 2008, the GFC, the first interest rate cuts presaged a collapse in US corporate earnings and the stock market. As already noted, given that over the last 12 months we have experienced the sharpest rise in, in the US in over four decades, along with quantitative tightening, tightening rather, followed now by a banking crisis that will further tighten the availability of credit, to suggest that the market is celebrating future rate cuts that will usher in the beginning of a new economic cycle does not seem credible. As events unfold, the idea that the US corporate earnings will remain resilient looks increasingly unrealistic, and the probability of further significant falls in US stock indices is high. However, 
Investors are not generally well served by focusing on such predictions. The best approach at such times is to not get caught up in the short term and instead focus on likely outcomes in different sectors and economies over the next five years and beyond and be ready to take advantage of opportunities presented by the markets. Companies that will benefit from the decarbonisation of the global economy, the diversification of supply chains and reshoring of production, higher interest rates and a resurgent China are some of the themes that we will continue to focus on in our search for opportunities. Moving over to the Platinum Asia Fund. It is encouraging to see many of the headwinds that have been present in China over the past couple of years now dissipating. The country has fully reopened from its COVID lockdowns and we are seeing consumers and businesses take advantage of this. Domestic travel has picked up dramatically. For example, Macau has seen visitations increase by 122% in the first two months of the year compared to the same period last year. Retail sales are also back to growth, rising 3.5% in January and February after showing a slight 0.2% decline last year. The property sector, which had been a headwind to the Chinese economy over the past 18 months, is is showing signs of stabilisation and possibly even the first glimmers of returning to growth. After a hiatus, the government is once again making it easier for the surviving developers to access fresh capital, complete projects and get back to growth. The People's Bank of China, the PBOC, has also taken a fairly nuanced approach to stabilising the market, with tailored policy settings in place for different parts of the country. One example of the PBOC's recent adjustments is to allow local markets to lower rates if their property prices have seen steady declines. This means, for example, that at the current point in time, a first-time home buyer could access funding at an interest rate as much as 1% lower if they wanted to purchase a home in certain provinces, where prices have recently been declining. Then if they were buying a home just 50 kilometres nearby in a relatively more buoyant property market, say like Shanghai. As a result of policies like these and others, which help to restore confidence in the market, new house prices across the 70 largest cities in the country actually saw a slight increase in January for the first time in a year, and volumes in the secondary market are starting to pick up as well. Another aspect that impacted investor confidence towards the Chinese market in recent years was the regulatory environment. After a series of regulatory actions, such as targeting anti-monopolistic behaviour among large e-commerce and internet companies, and opening the walled garden ecosystems these firms had developed, it appears the required adjustments in business strategy and operations are now largely complete. These actions have, in some instances, helped level the playing field, resulting in relative winners and losers emerging from the shake-up. With the industry now in a steadier state, we are seeing commercial activity once again picking up, as evidenced by a range of things, including the resumption of computer game launches and fintech companies re-engaging with plans to conduct an initial IPO. In recent months and quarters, we have received many questions from clients about our exposure to China. With the Chinese market having been so out of favour in recent times, we had steadily built up a very meaningful position. To be clear, we still remain optimistic about the outlook for the country and the market. That said, as the Chinese economy, company earnings and sentiment have started to improve, share prices have correspondingly begun to adjust upwards. Meanwhile, in other countries across the region, stocks have generally been a little weaker in recent months. 
As a result, the relative value on offer is, at the margin, shifting a little, and we have gradually been adjusting our portfolio to reflect the changing opportunity set. We've spoken previously about the improvements in the South Korean market with respect to protections for minority investors and how we expect this to be a slow and steady tailwind to asset pricing in that market over the coming years. In the shorter term, however, the Korean market tends to be pushed around based on market sentiment towards the more cyclical end markets for the country's major exporters. Over the past year, the country's semiconductor sector, namely Samsung and SK Hynix, has experienced a decline in end demand, with a concerted downturn across global mobile phone sales, PC and laptop sales, and demand from cloud computing and hyperscale operators. In the face of this weakness, the industry has behaved remarkably well, reducing planned investment in new capacity. However, reductions in planned capacity take time to tighten the supply-demand balance, and so we saw inventory build throughout the supply chain. While end demand still remains uncertain, we are hearing early positive commentary emerging around customer and channel, uh, customer and channel inventories starting to clear. The industry has also been dragged into the US-China trade war and strategic competition, further complicating matters. The positive from this is that these actions have reduced the threat of any new Chinese entrants, but they have also put a question mark on the longer-term future of these Korean companies' facilities located within China. So the industry may continue down a rocky path for a little while yet, but whenever global demand does recover, industry profitability could return with a vengeance. Moving to the outlook. As always, picking the future direction of markets is a challenging exercise. That said, the backdrop for investors to make money investing in the Asia region over at least the medium term seems promising. Unlike many stock markets around the world, Asia shouldn't face the same degree of headwinds from rising rates and the withdrawal of liquidity left over from prior quantitative easing exercises. Markets across the region are, by and large, trading on reasonable valuations, and it's not hard to find growth opportunities for companies and industries in these rapidly advancing economies. Our net exposure has reduced modestly during the past quarter, driven more by increases in our short positions than any paucity of long ideas. We continue to search broadly for new investment opportunities as part of the constant process of portfolio renewal, and the fact that we are continuing to find ideas at a steady cadence reflects the general premise that the region remains prospective. I'll now move to the Platinum Global Fund long only. And while these comments relate specifically to the fund, they do also add some context around global markets as the portfolio manager, Clay Smolinski, is seeing it. Clay talks about three uh, large pockets of exposure within the portfolio, namely travel, semiconductors and China. He then goes on to provide some commentary uh, on the portfolio and talks about a key pillar of our investment approach is the importance of using investor sentiment as a guide to the level of mispricing in stocks. Often, the best opportunities to buy are when investors are intensely focused on the prospect of a problem rather than when the problem has actually occurred. As markets are adept at fully pricing in negative events, well ahead of their happening. Now, a recent example of this Ford discounting dynamic is the US home building stocks. The US home building industry is currently in recession with the highest mortgage rates since 2007. But the stock prices of the home builders are generally 30 to 50% higher than where they bottomed in June 2022. The initial panic about the prospect of higher rates and a housing recession created the opportunity to buy. 
But by the time the housing recession that everyone was so worried about had begun, emotions had calmed and investors were already looking forward to mortgage rates being cut and a recovery. In this regard, we continue to rotate the portfolio as we look to take advantage of these new areas of intense feelings and sell down where the investment case has played out. Last year, Europe was a region surrounded by intense concern as investors worried about the prospects of Russia cutting off access to gas and what that would mean for corporates and the economy alike. Much like the US home building example, many European stocks bottomed before the gas was cut off, and we use this fear to build positions across a number of European stocks, including the European banks, Wizz Air, Infineon Technologies and Airbus. I'll skip over to the outlook for the fund. There is a persistent contradiction in the role that macroeconomics should have in decision-making. That contradiction is the fact that, the majority of the time, macroeconomics is of minor importance and shouldn't feature heavily in your decision-making. But there are certain times when macroeconomics matters a great deal and completely dictates stock prices in the short to medium term. The question then is, when do we pay attention? History shows the times when macroeconomics matters are when there is a significant change in the cost and availability of credit. With the global financial crisis, the European sovereign crisis and the Chinese shadow banking reform in 2018 following this pattern. The situation today fits the bill as we have seen a repricing of interest rates globally and the recent problems in the US banking system should produce a period of much tighter lending standards. Our initial reaction to these developing events is one of caution. Overall, on the macro front, in principle, there are reasons for caution, but we want to use this uncertainty to our advantage. This market environment is well suited to our investment style, and if we can continue to maintain a mix of rotating the portfolio into companies where the extremes are already discounted, along with building positions in companies where earnings can be higher in three to five years, Good returns should follow. Moving to the Platinum European Fund. European markets continued to perform strongly, led by the the consumer discretionary, industrials and IT sectors, as markets factored in slightly less negative business and consumer confidence. Financials, particularly European banks, had a very strong January and February, but gave back some of their gains in March following the bankruptcy of Silicon Valley Bank in the US and Credit Suisse's forced merger with UBS. In the report, portfolio managers Adrian Kottiger and Nick Dvornak uh, discuss one new position to the portfolio. The new position is the London Stock Exchange Group, or LSEG, which traces its roots back to Jonathan's Coffee House in 1698, where John Castang published a list of currency, stock and commodity prices. Over the last 300 years, the business has transformed itself many times, responding to numerous technological and social changes. LSEG has become a £40 billion global financial market infrastructure and data group. It's predominantly a a, a data business, which represents roughly 50% of the group's revenue. The remaining business can be categorised into four buckets it owns. It's the dominant foreign exchange trading venue. It's the leading fixed income electronic marketplace. It's the largest global over-the-counter interest rate derivative clearinghouse. And it's an index business entrenched in financial market infrastructure, which houses the FTSE or FTSE and Russell Equity Indices, Global Bond Indices and the WM Refinitiv Benchmark for Foreign Exchange. 
Although not optically cheap, we believe LSEG is mispriced because the change in the business has introduced execution and growth uncertainty, as well as long-term optionality, which is difficult to quantify. There's a, uh, an integration difficulty here with um, LSEG uh, integrating Refinitiv, and the two businesses need to achieve revenue and cost guidance, which can be difficult. So far, management seems focused on addressing the underlying issues, underinvestment, a weak terminal business, and an ineffective sales force. Furthermore, the group offers some optionality from the change in interest rate regime as well as, as well as from its partnership with Microsoft. Now, some of the products, such as uh, LSEG's terminal business uh, and data analytics, workflow solutions, will become interoperable with Microsoft applications. This could potentially provide LSEG with cross-selling opportunities to Microsoft Teams user base. Now, LSEG's future growth is a combination of increasing demand for data, the creation of new data sets, uh, as well as price increases. If the group is successful in transitioning to a data business and multi-asset class execution platform, it will likely grow revenues at a steady 5 to 7% per annum, which combined with margin expansion could deliver 8 to 10% earnings per share growth. In such a scenario, the market is likely to re-rate the stock in line with other data providers. Moving to the outlook for Europe, which is quite important at the moment. The trajectory of inflation and interest rates remains highly uncertain. Although the European Central Bank continued its tightening process, raising interest rates by an additional 1% to 3.5% during the quarter, Europe hasn't managed to tame inflation yet. It doesn't help that the Eurozone has a hot labour market, with unemployment at a record low of 6.6%. Recently, Germany suffered a 24-hour strike called by two service sector unions demanding a pay rise of 10.5%. There is still a risk that inflation will become entrenched while creating more social unrest. On the other hand, there is a fair chance that a potential recession could cool both inflation and wage pressures much quicker than expected. Our net invested position of 63% remains below the fund's historical average, with 26% exposure in shorts and 11% in cash. We continue to remain wary of further market weakness. A continued decline in the Eurozone bank's willingness to make loans, coupled with a significant slowdown in the US, could result in a tricky environment to navigate. A tightening in credit conditions typically results in a recession. However, uncertain environments offer attractive opportunities, both on the long side and the short side. Moving to the Platinum Japan Fund. A big story in Japanese markets during the quarter was the move by the Tokyo Stock Exchange, or TSE, to attempt to push companies to focus more on their cost of capital and stock prices via a name-and-shame approach. This culminated at the end of the quarter with a non-mandatory request that companies trading below one times price to book should publish detailed plans as soon as possible on how they expect to achieve a one times price to book level or better and to continue updating those plans each year. It appears that cash distributions from Japanese corporations will also continue to increase from current record levels, spurred by growing shareholder activism amid the ongoing push by the TSE, Financial Services Authority and Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry for corporates to improve their profitability. In turn, this should drive an improvement in stock performance. We could actually see a double whammy effect of buybacks driving a solid increase in book value per share coupled with a market trading at a higher average price-to-book ratio.
Now, regular readers may recall that the fund has a large weighting to companies where there is an opportunity to enhance shareholder value via improvements in governance and capital allocation. During the quarter, one of the fund's large holdings, Fujitech, saw major changes to its board of directors following an extraordinary meeting called by an activist to propose new independent director candidates. Following the partial success of the activists' slate, the company removed its unelected chairman and another existing director resigned, indicating the activists achieved a broader victory than initially suspected. Fujitech returned 10% for the quarter and has appreciated 40% from our initial purchase in May 2021. In terms of outlook, we see the outlook for Japanese stocks as very positive, with a starting point of low valuations and a tailwind of rising buybacks and dividends driven by the government and activists pushing to improve profitability, it is relatively easy to envision a golden period for the market going forward. Of course, Japan would not be immune from a US-led global downturn, but the economy is seeing a somewhat independent boost from corporate investment in the reshoring of production and wages that have begun to grow. Meanwhile, interest rates remain low and the currency appears to have stabilised, which reduces imported inflation. The fund is thus positioned quite bullishly so as to benefit from these dynamics. Moving to the Platinum International Brands Fund, where the C-class units of the fund delivered a solid 6.6% return for the quarter, lagging the broader market indices due to a very defensive positioning. Over the year, the fund gained 22.8%, which is considerably better than the general market. Of course, this performance was in part a rebound from a very weak prior year, but the three-year return of 15.5% per annum is also quite satisfactory. Significant pockets of weakness are emerging across the US consumer landscape, particularly in the results of businesses that serve primarily lower-income consumers, and especially in housing-related categories such as home furnishings. This is an area where we have established short positions with the view that the pandemic-era spending boom would reverse, and thus inflated sales and margins would overshoot on the downside. We have had some success with this approach, but where we have been surprised is in the persistence of spending strength amongst high-income consumers and in categories such as sporting goods, even as housing market weakness spreads and layoffs in the tech sector persist. It may take a more general recession, perhaps triggered by the contraction in credit, now apparent as a result of uninsured deposits fleeing regional banks, to prompt a return to pre-pandemic volumes and margin levels for these until now, more fortunately positioned businesses. We have experienced losses across several short positions as a result of persistent strength in spending, but continue to expect mean reversion in profitability going forward. The report notes that during the quarter, we added a new position in Japanese e-commerce player Digital Garage. The key asset owned by the company is a stake in listed online product comparison site, kakaku.com, but it also has other interesting businesses in payments and holdings of venture capital assets. The stock trades at a significant discount to key comparables due to a conglomerate structure and lack of historical focus on shareholder returns. An activist has become involved and is pushing the company to unlock latent value. We see the prospect of strong returns if even moderate success is achieved in this respect. To the outlook, overall we remain cautiously positioned, particularly where the US consumer is concerned, and in relation to stocks that are likely to suffer in a higher interest rate environment. 
That said, we continue to be constructive about the reopening opportunity in China. While many investors are waiting on the sidelines for meaningful improvements to emerge in the economic and other data, we have been willing to take positions based on first principles thinking bolstered by observed experience elsewhere. Moving to the Platinum International Healthcare Fund, where portfolio manager Dr Bianca Ogden notes that the global healthcare sector had the worst start to the year in 30 years relative to the S&P 500 index. The Platinum International Healthcare Fund primarily invests in companies that develop new therapies, devices or diagnostic approaches. The fund also focuses on companies that enable such innovations to take place, such as next generation tools used by scientists. For the past 18 months or so, these subsectors of healthcare have been abandoned by generalist investors due to the changing interest rate environment. Many companies in this subsector are unprofitable and depend on external capital, which is now more difficult to come by. In the past six months, we have witnessed a glimpse of a recovery, but the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, which has been a crucial provider of funding to many startups in this space, has again put a dampener on the recovery. In all honesty, the biotech sector is currently priced as if it is going out of business. In terms of commentary, pharma companies are sitting on very healthy balance sheets, but so far they have not deployed very much of it. Life for pharma companies is not going to get any easier, given that a patent cliff is approaching towards the end of this decade, and price pressure is set to intensify as a result of the Inflation Reduction Act provisioning for Medicare to negotiate certain prescription drugs starting in 2026. Mergers and acquisitions are inevitable, given that the competitive dynamics of the industry have changed significantly over the past two decades. Today, a market monopoly for a new mechanism of action drug is no longer a given. Peers, as well as biotech companies, are fast followers, continuously adding pressure. Hence, the days of being able to take your time and tinker with a new R&D project are behind us. Today, the need to increase R&D efficiency is paramount. For the outlook, many investors in the healthcare sector are trying to figure out where to hide, and during the March quarter, the defensive nature of healthcare did not really play out. M&A is not a fix, it is part of life in this sector. The Silicon Valley bank collapse was unhelpful and has put the biotech sector back to square one, with funding becoming an issue and a buyer's strike happening again we will be paying close attention to clinical data as well as approval decisions for several of our holdings. And moving finally to the Platinum International Technology Fund. Technology was one of the strongest performing sectors in the quarter. At the macro level, the strong performance is likely explained by expectations that the US Federal Reserve, the Fed, may stop increasing interest rates sooner than initially thought due to slowing wage growth, easing inflation and banks tightening their lending standards post the Silicon Valley bank collapse. At a stock level, companies that reported during the first quarter were broadly in line with expectations or better than feared. Semiconductors were a standout. Uh, during the quarter, as commentary from various management teams suggested that the first half of 2023 is likely to mark the bottom of the downturn and conditions could progressively improve throughout the rest of the year. The basket of unprofitable tech companies also benefited from lower interest rate expectations, rallying 15% in the quarter. Artificial intelligence, or AI, was the hot theme during the quarter after Microsoft drew attention to the capabilities and potential of ChatGPT. Microsoft, which is held in the fund, and NVIDIA were up 20% and 90% respectively. 
In terms of the changes to portfolio, the managers note that we added to our holdings in Google, we also added to Netflix, and we initiated a new position in NXP semiconductors. Over the next decade, we believe that semiconductor con- content per car will increase significantly as cars get smarter through digitization and increased penetration of advanced driver assistance systems, or ADAS, wireless connectivity and safety features. NXP should be well positioned for this as one of the leading auto semiconductor suppliers. Its valuation is not demanding, trading on a price-to-earnings multiple of around 14 times. In terms of fund commentary, uh, the managers note that we increased our position in France-based semi-wafer manufacturer Soytech across several of our strategies, not just the International, uh, International Technology Fund. The majority of Soytech's revenue comes from making specialised silicon-on-insulator, or SOI, wafers, which are used by customers to make certain key components in radio frequency front-end modules, or RFFEM, in smartphones. SOI wafers replace silicon wafers as the industry standard in these components due to their better performance, heat dissipation and power consumption characteristics. Substitution risk is low as the contribution to the bill of materials is small, about 50 cents per phone, yet it is mission critical to performance. Pricing competition is benign as Soytech holds patents on the proprietary slicing and stacking processes required to make SOIs and licenses out the technology to competitors. As a result, Soytech reported earnings before interest and tax margins of between 17% and 20% over the last five years. We believe there are several opportunities for Soytech to grow wafer content within smartphones over the next five years. As 5G penetration continues to increase, demand for SOI wafers will also increase given that the content per 5G phone can be up to 100% higher compared with a 4G phone. This reflects the increasing components and antennas needed to support the higher number of frequencies, faster data speeds and increase in carrier aggregation combinations. Furthermore, Soytech is also growing content in other parts of the smartphone, including making specialised wafers for filters, power amps, envelope trackers and Wi-Fi. We're also excited about the potential application of Soytech's manufacturing process to silicon carbide. Silicon carbide wafers are used to make power chips for inverters and onboard chargers in EVs. The material is expensive and hard to make, and demand is currently running well ahead of supply. If smart-cut silicon carbide proves to be successful, Soytech will be able to make up to 10 silicon carbide wafers from one high-quality wafer, thereby addressing the supply shortfall. While still in the early stages of commercialisation, the announcement by ST Microelectronics, which is the number one silicon carbide power chip maker in December 2022, that they are looking to qualify smart-cut SICs, gives us some confidence in the technology. We like the asymmetry in Soytech. In a scenario where smart-cut silicon carbide is successful, the technology will be a significant value and growth driver over the next decade as EV penetration continues to increase. In a scenario where smart-cut SIC fails, Soytech can still maintain its dominant position and decent growth profile in smartphones. The stock is trading on a price-to-earnings multiple of 21 times. Wrapping up with the outlook for the International Technology Fund. In the short term, we believe the market will likely remain volatile as investors continue to speculate on the Fed's future interest rate moves and whether the US economy will go into a recession.
Our 83% net invested position reflects our optimism that, in this potentially volatile environment, we will likely have plenty of opportunities to deploy capital and invest in interesting businesses over the coming 12 months. We will continue to look for opportunities in areas of structural change that are underappreciated by the market and are out of favour. Examples of the former include the decarbonisation theme, factory automation and structural changes in the way business-to-consumer business businesses will advertise to consumers in the future. With regard to the latter, given the collapse of loss-making software companies over the last 18 months, we are sifting through the wreckage and looking for companies with good products, mission-critical applications, and where management has outlined a credible path to profitability. Within this, we are careful to avoid companies with structurally unprofitable businesses. The Fed increasing rates less aggressively is not an antidote for bad business models and poor unit economics. And we'll leave it there for this audio version of the quarterly report as we've covered a range of topics and a number of stocks in focus. As mentioned at the start, you may also be interested in the macro overview audio interview with Andrew Clifford and myself, as well as the article on Vietnam, both of which can be found on the journal page on our website. Please do get in touch if you'd like more information or to provide feedback. The email is invest at platinum.com.au. We'd love to talk to you further about investing. But for now, thank you for listening. All the best.